0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: But first, Cardinal Mark Ouellette is one of the most prominent Catholic leaders in Canada, and he's accused of sexual assault in legal documents filed Tuesday in a Quebec court. Ouellette is considered a candidate for Pope in recent conclaves. He's one of the scores of church clergy, volunteers, and employees accused of sexual misconduct in a class action lawsuit against the Archdiocese of of Quebec. The latest news on this story is that the church dropped its internal investigation into the Canadian cardinal, citing lack of evidence. Our guest is Sean Doherty. He is president of the Survivor Network of Those Abused by Priests. Hi, Sean.
2: Hi, Roger. Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks for your time today. What was your reaction when you heard the Pope said there wasn't even grounds to investigate Ouellette?
2: Uh, shock without surprise. This is just a, a typical play from the ongoing playbook uh, coming from the Vatican. And this is, you know, our stance at, in SNAP uh, has been uh, the same across the board. Organizations such as the Roman Catholic Church in this case should not be left up to themselves to police themselves in matters of uh, child sex crimes. Uh as if we were talking about the Olympics, the Boy Scouts, the mormons we've we've seen it so much over the past few years, and all of these organizations are guilty of the same thing. Not only are they guilty of uh, sexually abusing uh, the vulnerable children under their care, they're guilty of covering it up, and they're also guilty of self policing um, if If they cannot be trusted. Uh, to care for the vulnerable children uh, and they are sexually abusing them how can we possibly expect uh, any investigation done by the organization itself to be on the up and up
1: Sean you say shock without surprise what do you mean by that
2: these are these are huge allegations this is yet uh, these are all shocking anytime in my opinion anytime a child is uh, sexually assault, assaulted, that's that's shocking. That should shock the world. Uh, that is abnormal behavior. Um, but once you hear it from the same organization over and over and over again, and their answer is always the same, we are going to police ourselves, our bishops and cardinals are going to police ourselves, um, how, how can you be surprised by that answer when you've heard it so many times before? The, 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 the shock, it should be double shock. It should be shock that uh, people are covering up the sexual abuse of children. And they should be also shocked that uh, the Catholic Church has been left up to the, themselves to police themselves over this matter.
1: Well let as you know, he's one of the most important figures inside the Vatican bureaucracy. So what does it mean to have a person in that prominent of a position be let off the hook from an investigation of conduct by the Vatican?
2: Well that that's in my opinion, that's not leadership. You know, if there's an investigation into a leader of an organization, that very leader, if they are in fact the leader, should be open and welcome welcoming to any investigation if he's innocent of these charges what's he have to hide Uh, so you know just the, the mere fact that you know he's risen to the position that he's risen to many bishops have been accused many priests monsignors cardinals have been accused of this just because they're in a prominent position does not mean that they're not capable of sexually assaulting
3: people
1: and what if any message do you think the Vatican is trying to send internationally to the Catholic community when they shut down this internal investigation?
2: Well, they're trying to convey that to their membership that there's nothing to see here. You know, that that they've investigated and and nothing else needs to be looked at. But we are here, SNAP is saying that Investigations into this cardinal need to happen. Um, This is one survivor coming forward. I am uh, willing to uh, bet that we will hear from others in the near future.
1: And how do you think Catholics are interpreting the Vatican's response to the sexual assault case?
2: I think some of the Catholics are beginning to waver a little bit. I think at first, you know, you hear one report you know, the reports coming out, I'm in the United States right now, the reports that have come out from different uh, various states in the United States, uh, reports coming out in France, in Ireland, in Chile. uh, After so many times, um, you know, the, the, the lady wants to believe badly, desperately, that uh The Church, uh, namely the Vatican, has cleaned up their act, but how can they fully believe this when we're constantly being bombarded with new accusations of very high ranking individuals within the organization so you know they're saying one thing, but these reports are uh, conveying a totally different story
1: so the court saw uh, in its in its record it shows that the woman who came forward. When she says that when she told other people about the assault, about the abuse along the way, that uh, they told her, oh, he's just like that. Do you think that's a common narrative?
2: It's a very common narrative. I, I am the president of a very large organization. I have spoken with survivors from literally around the world. That is a very common occurrence.
1: So, Sean, why? Why are these priests, why are these cardinals, why are these people in position protected so much?
2: Well, you said it earlier in, in your questioning. This is a very high-ranking official. So, you know, these, these people are, are, have power. They have connection. Uh, and with connection comes, um, you know, privilege. Uh, here in Pennsylvania, case in point, I, I was lobbying legislatively for for new laws here in Pennsylvania. And one of the state senators that I was uh, speaking with uh, laughed me out of his office uh, two years in a row. And following that, he was arrested for possessing uh, child pornography. He wow. was sitting on the Senate floor and he had child pornography on his phone, his name was senator mike fulmer a uh, pennsylvania state senator he served prison time he was arrested by the state attorney general here in pennsylvania this is not just the church in the case that we are talking about with the cardinal uh it's not just the church these these are very high-ranking officials they they reach uh, very high levels and uh in my argument in, in this is the time that we need the Roman Catholic Church to step up and lead on this subject and really show these other organizations how to completely come clean, um, but as of yet, we have not seen that out of the Vatican. All we are seeing or tried uh, tried tested um, uh, things that they 've done before the Dallas Charter was in two thousand two these are these are still continuing to happen so until, until the, the Pope says that we need to turn these over to secular investigators, uh, SNAP will not be satisfied.
1: Sean, it's good of you to give us your time today. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.
1: Welcome back to the show. I'm Raji Solhal in for Mike Smith, a major announcement in BC news right now that might affect your weekend plans. There is a significant update on the strike that is concerning liquor. Liquor purchases are being limited at government's BC liquor stores as of opening hours today. And Able BC has been informed by the government that as of opening hours today, all government owned BC liquor stores will limit the quantity of alcohol that customers can purchase in a single transaction. And that includes pubs, bars, restaurants, the public, you name it. BC liquor stores will limit customers to purchasing no more than three of any individual item per day. And these restrictions are going to apply to all products except beer. Basically, whatever product the BCL has right now is the only inventory they're going to have for the foreseeable future. We're talking to Ian Tostenson now. He's president and CEO of BC Restaurant and Food Association. Hi, Ian.
3: Good morning, Rush. How you doing?
1: I'm good, but wow, what news to wake up to today for you. What's your reaction to the uh, strike announcement and the latest measures?
3: Well, I mean, it's it's understandable because they're trying to make sure there's fairness in the system that people still have access, you know, as long as to your point, they're depleting their inventories fairly quickly. And we did start, I was in liquor store yesterday, all people had shopping carts and we're kind of going crazy. So this way, hopefully, everybody gets a little bit. Three bottles is not going to make any difference to a restaurant. None. And I think it just underscores the desperation of the situation right now and the fact that we're being held hostage to this labor dispute that we've got nothing to do with. So uh, I had converse, or phone calls this, early this morning from people saying restaurant groups that have promotions planned for Sunday around spirits and they can't get inventory. We've got other restaurants that had events planned for the weekend for receptions that can't pull off right now so it's a mess in and, and i don't see at this point that there seems to be any resolution in sight we're not getting any, any indication that there's any movement uh, in the negotiations. so we're we're um I, I don't know i don't want to say anything more than disappointed but this is a really difficult situation for us more than we thought would happen
1: and how far reaching do you think the impact will be
3: Someone said to me this morning in, in good context, he said, uh, isn't it interesting if someone else's labor dispute is going to result in the layoff mm-hmm. of workers that have nothing to do with it? Mm-hmm. Um, we will." There was a great story on Global last night about the cannabis store that has to lay off next week. I, I think we're going to be in the same situation. If this goes on beyond next week, I think you're going to see restaurants that that otherwise can't get supply having to at least limit their hours and uh and start cutting their costs because liquor occupies maybe you know 35 to 45% of the sales of a restaurant and um now we're trying to encourage people as we talked about the other today shifting to local you know local craft brew like your husband and but you know in in looking at the uh, you know that takes uh, you know probably 10 days to establish yeah. those relationships
1: yeah for sure So
3: it's not happening overnight so i I, I really put this on, again, On, on I, I asked the BCDU to come to their senses and help us here because they're hurting us, and they, they're not doing this for all workers. They're doing it for you know their situation, but they're going to hurt hundreds of thousands of workers in the hospitality. This goes on any further.
1: Yeah, although, Ian, in the same breath that you say that restaurants are being unfairly dragged into this labour dispute, isn't that their point?
3: Oh, yeah. I mean, Raj, if, if you and I were... On, on on that side of the equation, this is exactly a brilliant tactic. I, I you know I, I mean that's the only thing they know this is hurting us. They know that it's going to cause people, especially now that people are limited to three units per day. It sounds kind of weird. It almost sounds medical, but three bottles <laughs> per day. That's, uh, they know that people can be writing the premier's office. And but I think, you know, in the context of, you know, where they're at with their demands, maybe the province is in a bit of a bind here money wise. And so but it's a brilliant strategy in terms of angering the public. I think, like I said to the day, this is gonna turn against them. I think the public's gonna say, you know what, they seem to have a fair maybe have a fair offer on there. I hope they get an offer for sure. But um, in the context of disruption of my personal life, in terms of being the general public, I think it's going to backfire them on. So we're we're walking a fine line now. We really are. I was hoping to, I don't think it's going to happen today. Wouldn't it have been nice to hear that, okay, we're going to do this. I think we're going to see escalation of job action uh, and not a diminishing of where they're at right now.
1: Interesting. Have you talked to Stephanie Smith?
3: Uh, By way of uh, proxy, Okay. Uh, I have yeah um with within the organization, my purpose was to really n- do nothing more than to make them aware of the economics of a of a restaurant industry when the industry says that there 's low margins um it's a true story they don 't make a lot of money and they rely on cash flow and they rely on customers and the and the the, um, the forward motion that we started to have you know it hasn 't been that long Raj, since we um we came out of the pandemic. Yeah. It's only the springtime. So we're not talking here like a year behind us. We're talking months. And I wanted them to be aware of what's at risk here. And they were kind of sensitive to it, but they have their own objective. I said, you may want to consider, why don't you go in convenience to public and do rotating strikes in your liquor stores versus shutting the whole system down? I said, that still gets your point across, but I don't know. I'm not making any progress yet. Uh, but I'm going to continue to try and I'm going to continue to say I think you can make your point and I think we can all sort of find a solution here, but um, at this point, no, I'm I'm not getting anywhere, so I'm going to try.
1: Okay, Ian, thanks. Uh, I didn't know we were going to be having this conversation, this follow-up so soon after our our first initial conversation about where the BCG was uh, this week, so we'll uh, have to catch up with you again very soon, I'm sure. Thanks so much for being on the show.
3: We're open, Raj. We're open. We've got some stocks, so don't Pull back for people going to restaurants, but you know, a a week from now, it's going to be a different story. Perhaps. Thank you so much. Always.
1: Welcome back to the show. I'm Raji Sohal in for Mike Smith today. Well, Apple has a new warning for its users. There are some serious security vulnerabilities for iPhones, iPads and Macs that could potentially slow or allow attackers to take complete control of these devices. What is going on with them? We're talking to Andy Brar. He's a technology expert and tech blogger at HandyAndyMedia.com. Hi, Andy. Hi, Raji. All right. So what's going on with Apple's latest warning? This was a bit of a surprise.
0: Yeah. And I think the reason why it's a surprise is that typically when um, there is a security breach or a vulnerability, tech companies typically don't want to go out and publicly talk about it. They want to yeah. nip it in the butt and, and take care of it. But the fact that Apple has come out and told this just shows you how the, you know, serious this vulnerability is. Essentially it's it's in the core of the operating system and What Apple has said is they think it's been exploited already. They haven't said anything else, like who got exploited or what. But they believe it happened at least once, and they took the rare opportunity to publicly tell everybody about this so that everyone will now update their iOS to ensure that it doesn't happen to them.
1: Yeah, so they're urging consumers, customers to update the iOS, which... I know you're supposed to do it automatically or if not automatically, you know, at the earliest convenient time. But I am one of those people who has multiple iPhones, multiple laptops. My husband is in tech, so I blame him. But I don't do those iOS updates all the time when I'm supposed to. I sometimes hold off because I don't want it to interrupt my use of a device. So uh, how could this affect users if they haven't updated the iOS
0: Well, if they haven't made the update, that shows that they're vulnerable. And it's kind of an interesting thing because now that Apple has been public about this, if you're a hacker and you didn't even know about this exploit, you're now looking into it and trying to figure out how can you take advantage of it. So it's really like important for people to, to update their devices because you are vulnerable and there's going to be people out there trying to get in. Now, it's really important for high profile individuals, uh, celebrities, um, politicians, even journalists like yourself who, you know, Those are the people that really need to get that update done right away because they probably have sensitive information on their phone that other people want. And I think that's why Apple took this rare uh, opportunity to publicly say this. And we have to understand this is only a couple of weeks before they announced the new iPhone. So I'm sure they didn't want to do this, but I'm glad that they did.
1: Yeah, in terms of PR optics, it's not great timing. But, Andy, I wanted also to talk about their reputation because compared to other devices, up until now, the iPhone and, and really Apple products in general, they have a reputation for being more secure. So are Apple devices less secure than we've been led to believe?
0: I think the, the thing is each manufacturer wants to say that they have the, the most secure device. One mistake a lot of tech companies would would do in the, ba- in the past, Raji, is they would say, you can't break into our device. And that's just an open call to every hacker out there who wants to get, you know, street cred for hacking. Yeah, challenge. Exactly. So they don't do that anymore. They don't say that you can't break it, but they do talk about how their devices are secure. And Apple historically has had a very, very secure device in terms of data breaches and what. And the reason why is that they own both the hardware and the software. They control every single element of, you know, their devices. So they've been able to to become a very secure device. But again, anything is, is vulnerable. And you, you can try to make the most secure device, but at some time, some hacker is going to find a, a backdoor. And in this case, it looks like Apple had heard about this. And, and now is uh, alarming the public to make these updates. And I hope people do, you know, at least before you go to bed, get these updates. So you wake up in the morning with a, a freshly updated phone.
1: Yeah, for sure. And also uh, just a slight pivot here about Apple products There's um, and security. There's this product out there called the Apple AirTag. Can you tell us what it is and what it's used for primarily?
0: Sure. So the Apple AirTag, it's about the size of a quarter or maybe a loony. And it's a small little device that has a watch battery, those typical flat, watch batteries inside of it. It uses Bluetooth and what people are using it for is to track items. So if you you could put it on your keychain, if you lose your keys, you can then open up your iPhone and find the location of your keys. Well, with all the travel worries that people have with their luggage this year and people losing luggage, a lot of travelers were putting them on their luggage and using that to track their lost luggage. And so they would go to airlines and they're saying, your luggage is not here. And they're like, yes, I can see it on a map. It is here. And Uh, A very interesting case out in Florida where a woman put it on her luggage and they found it. She found it in some home, alerted the police. The police, out of their good uh, investigative skills, decided to backtrack the people that work at the airport with the addresses of this location. And sure enough, a baggage claimer lived at that location and was arrested for stealing luggage, all thanks to the Apple AirTag.
1: Yeah, and her bag, her luggage was apparently worth $16,000. So, a good thing that she put that AirTag on there, but then also I've heard that they're while they're good for great for great really for security, they can be really bad for privacy.
0: Yeah, and Apple's had a lot of issues uh, about the AirTag because this technology can be used for nefarious purposes and people have been using it to stalk other individuals. They would put them on their cars or maybe um, you know, inside of a woman's purse and then be able to track people. And so Apple got a lot of heat for this, and they've put new security features. So if you have an iPhone and there is an Apple uh, AirTag near you, you'll get an alert that there is a, a, a tag near you, just so that in the event that you are being tracked by someone else. So, you know, a lot of people think they need to do more security on that front, but, you know, with the, with the, the luggage, it just shows you that this technology does have a good fit. It really depends on how you use it. And the the onus is on Apple to ensure that people don't use it for the wrong reasons.
1: Yeah, I do talk to some uh, frequent travelers who tell me that they actually tag everything. They will put a tag on their uh, luggage that they're just putting in the overhead bin on the airplane as well. Uh, for fear that somebody might swipe that. Now, that happened to me once. It was a really sad event uh, when I was uh, coming back from Spain to New York, and someone, while I guess I was sleeping, went into the overhead bin and, and grabbed my little bag that was up there. Uh, is there any pitfall, though, to putting these air tags in many, multiple places?
0: Well, I guess the only pitfall is you have to understand they are battery powered, so they'll last right. for about a year. So a lot of, you know, and that's long enough for you to forget. And so if you're going to go traveling and you do have these AirTags and it's been a while, you want to make sure you put a fresh battery inside of it. Roger, they're even making wallets now where you can actually embed the AirTag in your wallet so that you, in case you use, uh, lose it, you'll be able to find it. So I, I love the technology. For Android users out there, you can use another one called Tile. It works on both platforms. Um, but it's good technology for travelers and Apple, you know, They're having a field day with this for the 2022 summer travel. Everybody is using AirTags now on their luggage.
1: Yeah, especially when you see those images of these like kind of graveyards of abandoned luggage, lost luggage that's trying to make its way back to an owner at an airport. You see uh, see these images coming out of Europe at airports where it's like it looks like hundreds of bags piled up on top of each other and they don't know who it belongs to. And I think about, well, if you AirTagged all those, maybe we could figure it out sooner.
0: Yeah, it only costs $40, and you can imagine the peace of mind that you get when you're traveling. And like you said, even on your carry-on, because as you know, sometimes when you are, are boarding a plane, they'll ask you to, if anybody wants to put their carry-on into check baggage. Yeah. So that's another way of just kind of getting that peace of mind, knowing that – so you know where your stuff is and you can find it uh, on your phone. I think it's a yeah. great use of technology and, and Bluetooth as well. Just the back end of how it works is, is pretty like, amazing. Um, and I'm, I'm just glad that people are, are getting use out of it.
1: Thanks so much, Andy.
0: My pleasure, Raji.
1: Hi, I'm Raji Sohal. In for Mike Smith today, this week we've been talking about the staggering number of overdose deaths in our province, claiming the lives of more than six British Columbians every single day, and it's all due to the toxic, poisonous drug supply. We've had guests on multiple sides of the debate about safe injection sites. Our next guest is Sam Sullivan. You know him as the former mayor of Vancouver. He was also the former Minister of Cultural Development of BC. Hi, Sam.
4: Hello, how are you?
1: Good. Thanks for being with us today.
4: Yeah, thank you.
1: Sam, you've seen our province's overdose crisis get way worse over time. What is your take on safe injection sites and safe supply?
4: Well, it's just bewildering to me that all these other countries have have solved this problem. Switzerland since the 1990s they had the worst open air drug scene in the and in, in Europe. And they uh, solved it. They um, allowed everybody to go back to their own uh, cantons, and they provided uh, uh, heroin or, or prescription alternatives uh, if they needed it. And uh, they don't have a street scene. They don't have um, any major kind of overdose crisis. Solved it 30 years ago, and here we are. It's just bewildering. Uh, it, it's It's tragic.
1: So what do you think we can learn from Switzerland? What, are they, what did they do that we are not doing?
4: Well, they just said, okay, um, you know, you have a serious addiction. You're not getting off uh, anytime soon. Uh, we are going to uh, have you go back to the places where you came from and to your own canton where you have family and friends and support systems. And we will provide you a prescription to uh, a low dose of whatever it is that you're addicted to. So you don't have to steal and you don't have to feed organized crime, you know. They don't have people shooting each other on the streets over drug profits like we do. What a primitive and bizarre system we're in right now. Like, I would have thought that uh, this would have been solved a long time ago, but here we still are.
1: So they were providing, um, you know, medical amounts. Uh, they, it was their version of safe supply. And we are doing safe supply in Vancouver. What are we getting wrong about it?
4: Well, no, we we they call it safe supply. What they do is they give uh, these tablets out and and uh, to injection drug users. Of course, what do the injection drug users do? They inject them. Uh, and our tablets have these fillers in them, which are dangerous. So then they give them instructions on how to uh, uh, you know boil out the fillers. And uh, it's just bizarre. Like this is not safe supply, and, and 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 you know you don't just give out drugs. Like they, it's a very monitored program. Like we have a program here called Crosstown Clinic. 158 of the most hardcore drug addicts get free heroin. You know, prescription heroin, and uh, they went. They had the worst. Uh, 80% of them were homeless. They had all sorts of crime and. And they were always filling up the, you know, emergency rooms. Now, all of them are housed. Um, many of them are working. Uh, they don't have, they don't fill up the emergency rooms. They don't, uh, you don't. they're not always being arrested for crimes. They don't participate in crimes. 150 of the most hardcore people, and they're doing fine. And for some reason, the government won't increase that, um, that, that program which it, it, none of them have died of overdose. These are the hardest core addicts. And uh, it's just bizarre. Like when I when I was in government, we were planning to double the program and triple the program. And uh, here we have 10,000 dead people. And this program, which works based on the Swiss model, which by the way was based on the British model, it's, it's, bizarre and i don't it's, a, it's like living in this nightmare this alternative universe where they solve these problems and they don't put up with street disorder in switzerland they don't deal they don't put up with overdose deaths they have solved the problem 30 years ago and here this primitive system that we've got here in british columbia just doing the same thing over and over again But Sam,
1: one thing that has changed and changed pretty quickly is how poisonous the drugs have become, how toxic they have become, how many things are now being, uh, how many synthetic adders and fillers have been uh, put into the drug, into these fentanyls to make them even more dangerous. And that's changed drastically and and quickly.
4: But that doesn't happen in Switzerland because it's all medical. It's all, uh, you know, pharmaceutical uh, opiates. And they don't—they don't have that kind of problem. The only pro- reason—and this is why I oppose safe injection sites—I helped uh, Philip Owen set up the first one in North America, uh, but it was meant to deal with an emergency health crisis. It was a stopgap measure. It was never meant to be the destination. It was a step on the path. And here we are, 20 years later, still with this stopgap emergency measure. And what we do is we ask drug addicts to steal, to buy tainted drugs from dealers who are, by the way, shooting each other on the streets. And then we have them come out into this injection site, and they, they inject it in front of us. And, and if it's deadly poison, then we, 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 we you know, resuscitate them. And but, we call but Sam, we're talking about safe supply demon.
1: today. We're talking about safe supply, and so this would be. uh... Okay,
4: so is that what they're using in the in the safe injection, the supervised injection site? Well, not using that. They're they're using street drugs. They're asking people to buy, to steal, and buy street drugs, bring it in, and then inject it in front of them. And they think there's some sort of morally superior people because they're supporting supervised injection sites. This is this is primitive. So, so
1: some advocates say that the supervised injection sites are an important pillar in harm reduction because the person's not shooting up alone. What do you think about that?
4: 20 years ago, it was a great idea. Um, shooting up alone. Of course, you don't want. Well, certainly you don't want people shooting up uh, tainted, poisonous drugs alone. Uh, In in Switzerland, they do that all the time. They go home. In fact, even in Vancouver, uh, people with addictions, who are the hardest core addicts, who are now working, they can't come into the supervised clinic all the time. So they give them these drugs to take at home. Uh, They just take enough drugs to stop themselves from getting sick. They don't get high out of these things anymore. These people are seriously addicted and so they are taking them home and they're, they're doing fine uh, injecting by themselves. It's a low dose that keeps them from getting sick. This is what we're doing right now is so bizarre.
1: And yet, as you're aware, some of these people don't have a home to go to, don't have family members, might not even be friends. They might be socially isolated. And that the, the and idea is that because
4: they're in full-blown addiction and they don't have access to the mod- modicum, moderate amount that would keep them As the 150 people of the worst that were 80% were homeless, they're all housed, they're working, they're living normal lives, they're stabilized, they don't do all of this crime, and they don't get into our emergency room services. Um, It's just weird that we're having this conversation at all.
1: Okay, Sam, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. I'm Raji Sohal in for Mike Smith. How can a healthcare system, which can barely stand to meet the primary care needs of so many people who live here, scale up a safer drug supply program? Our next guest says it can't. Dr. Paxton Bach is a professor at UBC Medicine and an addiction medicine physician at St. Paul's Hospital. Hello, Dr. Bach.
5: Hi, Roger. Thanks for having
1: me on. Thank you for coming on. You've just written this piece in the province in which you say that as an addiction medicine physician, you say I'm overwhelmed by the increasing volume and complexity of patients that we see pass through our clinic every single day. You write that you feel ill prepared and not equipped to provide treatment that can help patients stay safe. What did you mean by all of that?
5: Um I think that I, th- I think that there there are, there are plenty of things um, that our last guest mentioned that i that I disagree with, but one of the one of the things that I strongly do agree with is that is that uh, we could have taken a more progressive approach to substance use twenty years ago in our country and 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 very likely the landscape would be different uh, had we done that but the reality is um, we are where we are and and really I think you hit on a very important point is that the the main difference between what we 're dealing with now versus any time in the past or any time really Anywhere else in the world is an incredibly volatile, toxic, unpredictable, and rapidly evolving drug supply. Um, that has wreaked havoc um, um, in, in the lives of people who use drugs and, and people who, who, who know them and love them. And it has made our work addiction medicine physicians incredibly difficult. Um, on any given day, we don't know what we're going to see in the hospital. Um, and, and as soon as, as we start to feel comfortable with one approach, everything changes. Everything um, changes, major. yeah
1: paxton you said we should have been more progressive back then 20 years ago 30 30 years ago and i think for people who live in vancouver and have seen the change the difference in that time uh, we all agree on that right but hindsight is 2020 if we could have gone back what should we have done to have prevented the situation that we're currently in
5: i think i think as 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 um uh, your last speaker highlighted there, there's been a number of approaches used in Europe for, for, for many years, including including access to injectable prescribed heroin, including less punitive and carceral systems to deal with substance use. You know, Switzerland is, 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 is one model. Portugal is a model that's often held up. There's lots to learn from, from the way these uh, countries approached their substance use issues um, decades ago. Um, but, but in our current crisis, um, I worry very much. Um, one that 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 these kind of approaches will no longer be adequate to deal with the with the situation that we're currently dealing with. And and beyond that, believe me, I'm I'm, I'm certainly an advocate for expanding access to treatment and and, and harm recovery um, services. But the time it takes to 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 build these programs, particularly in a country like Canada with such a, a widespread rural population, um, is prohibitive, and people are dying. Every single day, we're, we're losing six people in our province alone. Every single day.
1: Yeah, and we talk about addicts, we talk about their families, but what your piece really pointed out to me is that our system puts unimaginable pressure on healthcare workers too. Healthcare workers who are working to uh, control this epidemic, and it's not—we're no longer swimming; we're we're just treading water.
5: Tread, treading water is putting it generously. I don't think that we were thriving um, even prior to these times. Um and certainly and certainly now with the with the ongoing tidal wave of Alordos deaths, with this with this absolute crisis, now further further um made made further worse by COVID nineteen by the stretches on on our healthcare system. We're we're starting to see one of the one of the one of the um anecdotes I highlighted in that article was was this um was this uh Advertisement posted in the paper in, in Victoria recently, seeking a family physician to prescribe an hypertensive medication the, to right. refill the most benign medication out there. If we can't if we can't consistently um, guarantee access to and to blood pressure medications, um, how are we how are we proposing to um, to scale up? Uh, access to safe supply through a medical system um, um, that can't even currently barely perform its basic functions.
1: Well, yeah, it's an important question. And when it comes to healthcare, we're desperately operating in triage mode on all fronts. So, what, in your opinion, do most people not understand about the harm reduction approach within that broader crisis that we're in with our healthcare system?
5: So i uh, so I can't speak to the to the issues with their health because system at a whole, that's way outside of my wheelhouse. But as far as, as far as the overdose crisis itself goes I think that again there is there, there there are a number of things that I do agree with uh, from your last caller. I think that we very much need to scale up access to treatment and recovery services and harm reduction services currently um, you, you you will if, if somebody wants to enter detox they're looking at a two to three weight to enter to enter a detox facility, which is an eternity for somebody who's who's using you know toxic and unpredictable drugs every day you're looking at a two to three month wait to access uh, a a private treatment bed, and that's just for those who are who are seeking that for those who are we're not actively seeking um, um, uh, seeking addiction treatment or addiction recovery. Or for those who don't even actually have an addiction, but just use drugs recreationally, sometimes um, that's going to continue to be insufficient. So while 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 doing that, alongside of that, it's incredibly important that we try and make things safer for people who drugs who use drugs tomorrow. Um, uh, and and. Many advocates, myself included, um, would suggest that, that that access to a safer and regulated drug supply is the number one way we can do that tomorrow and and try and make people's lives a bit safer. But trying to do that exclusively under the umbrella of of a healthcare system and a prescribed model, it's destined it's destined to fall short for a number of reasons. One of them, only one of them, being the the, the burdens which are already on our primary care system in in the current time.
1: Yeah, you write also uh, that we need to look at harm reduction approaches designed to help separate people from an increasingly poisonous supply of illicit drugs. Uh, how? How are we going to do that?
5: So so that, that, that piece, I, I, I often highlight three things that we need to, to do to actually... Um, Change the the uh, the trajectory of our overdose crisis. One of them is is uh, is building a, a more effective, accessible, patient-centered uh, addiction treatment system, which currently doesn't exist in this province. A second one is addressing significant significant upstream drivers of, of substance use and and, and and harms of substance use, things like poverty and homelessness and mental health issues and trauma and racism issues that 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 we have yet to really to really address in our province but the the third piece is 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 how do we distance people from a drug supply that is that is that is incredibly poisonous today how do we how do we actually keep people safe today while we do these the the hard work in these other areas and 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 safe supply or access to a safer regulated drug supply as an alternative to a poisonous and volatile drug supply is is the number one way that i see us being able to actually um keep somebody from dying tomorrow and and give them and give them um, that that space to 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 use as safely as possible um, while we try and address many of these other desperate needs that okay. we, that we have that will take years to, to 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 really get on top of
1: okay thank you so much dr. Paxtonbach I
5: appreciate it thank you.